You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts. Hi, this is Caitlin Martin. I'm Towner French. This is Patrick Martin. I'm Rodney Davis. This is Mark Alderman. This is Howard Schweitzer. Rodney, Mark, Patrick, maybe Towner joining us. We'll see. Uh, welcome back. Uh, long hiatus for the Beltway briefing. Patrick, what did you do for your summer vacation? <laughs> what did we What did we do for summer vacation? We uh, went up to northern Michigan, uh, which was great. Um, probably on previous podcasts mentioned, we go up to the Petoskey Bay Harbor area. It's Ernest Hemingway country up there for those uh, who enjoy the Nick Adams stories. Um, but it was it was great. It was a lot of fun. Good good rest time. Very nice, Rodney. Well, this is really the first August true August break I've had in twenty six <laughs> years. Remember when I I was a district staffer for a congressman? August was the busiest month we had because mm. they were home the entire month. Um, and then when I was in Congress, it was the same thing. So. I got a chance to go to France and Norway. Uh, Beautiful, beautiful time. Great 10 days that we are nine days we spent over there. Um, And now I at the end of August, I got to experience the uh, loveliness of the hottest East Coast weather in the United States of America. that I think anybody here has experienced in a long time. So enjoyed August. And I'm certainly liking this side of the political end of the spectrum in August a lot better than the last one I had. And and Mark. What, Mark, well, what did you do for your summer? I'm going to object to everybody rushing autumn. Summer isn't over until Thursday. <laughs> Trying for that is, I Mark, I wasn't going to do it, but that is such a self indictment. <laughs> so, you're like Mark. You're like Trump. You're indicting yourself. Still hitting golf balls for my summer vacation hour. Clams on the grill. Still hitting golf balls. Well, I uh, spent a little time in Europe, which was very nice, including one of the craziest experiences I've ever had, going to a English Premier League game in London, Chelsea v. Luton Town. It was just, it was it was very cool. It was now, how did did Felicia go or just Jake? Felicia and Jake. Okay. Jake heard words he's never heard before yeah. or heard them used ways he's never heard them used before. <laughs> never been to a Yankees game. Huh? <laughs> the Yank? Rodney, you're up in, you're now up in, uh, at Harvard doing your residency for the summer. Not a medical residency, thank God, <laughs> but a political residency at the Kennedy School. You were spotted last Friday wearing a Bush light yeah. shirt in Harvard Yard. Which, yeah. That, Finally, I, there, I, there's been a lot of talk recently, important talk about affirmative action and college admissions. I, I think this is diversity run amok if, our, if Rodney is on the Harvard campus. Letting, you mean letting in a Republican, Mark? Letting in Rodney in particular, I think. It's, uh, <laughs> Has Taylorsville, Illinois, ever been represented at Harvard? 
Uh, you got to drop the S, but yes, Taylorville. Taylor, uh, I think Taylor Taylorville has had some Harvard grads. Um, they're probably rolling over in their grave knowing that Harvard <laughs> asked me to come here and instead of me paying to see them, they're paying me. This is great. Um, but I will tell you, uh, in all seriousness, uh, even without the Bush Light shirt, Harvard Yard, uh, I do sometimes feel somewhat like a circus animal being a Republican on Harvard's campus. But <laughs> I found a few others yesterday uh, at a couple of meetings. Just with yeah. all the, with the summers in France and the falls in Cambridge, I don't know how you're possibly going to reference what Republican America is thinking about anything because you are spending way too much time in these fancy liberal places. But see, unlike you globalists, I don't have to blend in and become one of them. You know, <laughs> Howard's going to start yelling at us like at a Chelsea soccer match. Is Ted Lasso as accurate as I think it is, even though I've never been yeah. there? It Rodney, is. Rodney self-identifies as a Republican. <laughs> you know what? Right. Me, hold on. I'm going to type that into my, uh, into my Zoom identification. <laughs> so what, what's the pronoun for that, Kevin? I don't Normal. even want to. Point. <laughs> All right. To the, that's what happens when a hurricane is about to hit your house. I'm, I'm watching the wind. I yeah. can All see right. it. All right, guys. So to the issues of the day, and I hate to paint a negative picture, but we're on the verge of a government shutdown. We've got unmitigated crisis on the southern border in a way that now Democrats are starting to criticize the administration for. We've got the former president facing criminal charges in four separate cases. The president's son was indicted yesterday. We're about to begin another impeachment. Mitt Romney is hanging it up. So like one of the few Republicans in the Senate, at least, who's willing to publicly, emphasis on publicly take on the administration, is leaving Congress. I will say on the flip side, I feel like if there's one kind of positive issue out there, and we were going back and forth on all the negativity before the podcast and looking for some positive, but I actually do think this is a positive. I feel like our China policy is going better and more consistent between the parties than anything else. And it's probably the most important. China's probably the single most significant threat to this country from a number of perspectives. I feel like that's actually going pretty well. But man, the picture is 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 not super positive. Um, and, and let's start here on, on the shutdown. Rodney. I mean, I, I don't get it. Like, why? Why are the why is the Freedom Caucus? Why is the far right shutting down the government, which is essentially what's going on, holding Kevin McCarthy hostage? And is it principled, or is this just more of the tear it down, Trumpian, dystopian kind of view of? of how to govern what what is going on 
Well, I don't think this has anything really to do with Donald Trump. I mean, we experienced similar shutdowns long before Donald Trump uh, even became a Republican, actually while he was still a Democrat. Uh, but in the end, uh, it's it's this is a prime example why when people talk about uh, term limits in Congress, they don't realize that the House continues to churn and turn over uh, so much so that in since 2013, when I experienced my first shutdown, when Ted Cruz and the then pre-Freedom Caucus members were standing up to force Barack Obama to get rid of his signature health care legislation, you know, that worked great for us. We ended up having furloughed employees, and it cost taxpayers more to reopen government than it did to actually, if we would have just funded government, even with the short-term CR. Uh, this is indicative as a power play from those same individuals who are now the Freedom Caucus members, newer, more voiceless members who want attention. And they want to hold Kevin McCarthy and the Republican majority hostage. Um, they don't understand, and most of them, those new members don't understand what a shutdown means because they've never been a part of one, or when they were, it was a short-term one that really didn't have any impact. Um, I will tell you, I, I I think the odds against a shutdown got somewhat better over the last few days. Um, I argued that the the I would say the odds of a shutdown last week were about 110%. I think now it's down to um, the odds are about a 99% chance we have a shutdown. Tanner, jump in. Is it, yeah. is it principle or well, is, is there any all, principle here? In the list you mentioned of all the bad things that are happening, literally none of it matters to anybody. Like there's no consequence or effect, essentially, of just about anything that you listed in that all the things that are going on are bad today. Like Mitt Romney leaving the Senate, Biden getting impeached doesn't matter. He's not going to get convicted in the Senate. Trump got impeached twice. He didn't get convicted in the Senate. We're on. It's just a the taken together. It's a degradation of of the norms of our politics. Most certainly, the shutdown. Bleh, you know, doesn't matter. At the end of the day, we were going to have a shutdown, and I still think it's over a hundred percent. To be quite frank, I think we have a ways to go to walk down this path. And and we started a little earlier, which means that it could be a shorter shutdown than the three weeks I was anticipating. But but at the end of the day, we were going to have a government shutdown the day we passed the Fiscal Responsibility Act and avoided the debt ceiling breach on January second in the House. That was is a foregone conclusion because there had to be a way to to have steam vented essentially out of the process. And as most people who've gone through it in 2013 know, that was the last time we had really a, a full government shutdown. This not in 2018 was a partial, 2013 was a full and it went 16 and a half days, I guess you could say. The There is very little actual consequence from having a government shutdown. The CBO at the time estimated a 0.1 reduction in quarterly GDP, uh, just based on... 8 million federal employees curtailing spending slightly in anticipation that they might not get another paycheck. What they didn't look at is whether those federal employees, similar to COVID, ramped up their spending in the following month once they got their paycheck plus interest for not working uh, during that time. So, um, you know, it's consequences are not real in a government shutdown anymore. They were yeah, but, probably in the late 90s, early 2000s, but we've mitigated a government shutdown but the, from having actual effect. But the narrative is toxic. 
Yeah, but the narrative is taking place 14 months before an election. Nobody's ever going to remember today when they go to the polls next November. Senator, may I ask you, Rodney, this? How does it end? It seems to me, looking in from the other side, that we all know now how it's going to resolve. And instead of resolving it before the shutdown, we're going to go through some ritual, sacrificial ceremony and then do exactly what we know we can do right now. Which is talking about the UNW uh, strike, or we talked, it sounds like the same thing, right? Like we we knew it was inevitable, and we know it's inevitable that it's going to happen. We're going to go through this exercise and then it'll get worked out, right? Mark, to your point, I mean, it's like, yeah. Yeah. But this is good for the Republican Party. That's what I'm trying to, I mean, it's not good for the Democrats, actually. You know, even though the Democrats might have a slight uptick, I always argue that this kind of thing is great for Republicans. Because they are able to, in some way, shape, or form, bring some form of reality. Those who are teetering on the edge of, yeah, I'm bowing to the Freedom Caucus. This happened in 2013. We're able to come back over a little bit and say, I don't understand what they're asking for here on the far right. Like, I can't figure it out. And finally, after five or six weeks of of saying, yeah, I'm willing to go along with whatever you want to do. So we, in 2013, get Obama to defund Obamacare, for example. You know, after five or six weeks, they go, this is not a winning strategy. I think I'm going to go back over to the other side and I'm going to end this shutdown. And I'm probably going to vote for a few more leadership options moving forward. So for, for Republicans, I think it's a time for those in the middle to exercise some demons a little bit. Well, Tony, you're right. I, I personally witnessed that in 2013. Remember, I was a freshman. Um, came off, came in, winning the closest Republican victory in the nation. So, during the 2013 shutdown, Democrats uh, nationwide, I mean, they just came after me and the other targets. And coincidentally, of course, uh, when President Obama's FAA put out a list of air traffic control towers that were contract towers that, that were going to be shut down unless the shutdown was ended immediately, uh, conveniently in the state of Illinois, they were all in my district. I know that was just a coincidence. Um, but in the- Put you on the no-fly list. That would have been really funny. <laughs> exactly. Well, Republicans don't win shutdowns in the media. Republicans will never win the national narrative with a shutdown. They came close with one of the like four or five mini shutdowns that I experienced one time. Uh, but that was during the Trump administration, and we were able to play some offense. Republicans will have no chance at having any victory in the media on this. However, I will argue the Democrats thought they were going to use a shutdown against me and others like me. And what we were able to do post-2013 is come in after the shutdown, because we voted to end it, look like we were the grown-ups. And I think that ended up helping me in my first reelect, rather than hurting me. So long term, I agree with you, Tony. But I have one question. Yeah, me, Tony, you're still at 100 percent shutdown. I don't believe that you don't have any faith in my friends, Dusty Johnson, Stephanie Bice and Kelly Armstrong to negotiate with the Freedom Caucus and deserve at least one percent of a chance against a shutdown to go to 99. Now, you don't trust my friends that much, Tony. Is that what you're telling me? I trust your friends in the room that they can come up right now what they're negotiating on. This is moderates and conservative Freedom Caucus conservatives in the Republican Party in the House only 
are sitting down at the table at the end of this week and they're having a conversation as to whether or not they, these two groups in one party, in one house, can come to some sort of understanding of how they can move a continuing resolution to keep the government open through the House floor. That's what the negotiation is on. And the topics of the negotiation are whether they include border protection provisions that are included in H.R. 2, which was the Republican only passed uh, border security bill from this past spring that has not been taken up in the Senate. And Democrats have said we'll never see the light of day in any body they control. And they've been talking about reducing federal spending below our current fiscal year 2013 levels, which was what was actually agreed to in the debt ceiling deal that we would just continue our current spending levels into uh, the next fiscal year, fiscal year 24. And they're negotiating a few extraneous items. And so even if they reach some sort of agreement, it is still not going to be anywhere near something that Democrats in the Senate, Republicans in the Senate, or President Biden will support in any way, shape, or form. So what they're negotiating right now is whether or not they can muscle something through the House with 218 votes without any Democrats voting for it and get enough moderate Republicans to vote for it that they can squeak it through the House. That is a recipe for continued failure. I wish people could see our screen right now because basically what it is is two Republicans talking to one another with like their lips moving really fast, but nobody really understanding what the hell they're saying. (laughs) Patrick's got his hand under his chin just sitting there watching because... And that's what the Democrats are doing. Yeah. They're just sitting there watching a bunch of BS back and forth talk. And and interestingly, even though uh, not represented on the screen, the capital markets are just sitting on the sidelines watching. The the market's going up. The markets do not care about government shutdowns. That should give you a good indication of how important government shutdowns are. Well, that's my point. What's the point if no one cares is my point. But there's apparently some, I'm using your word, Towner, there's some exorcism going on. Maybe, I don't know if you use live chickens or whatever in your sacrifices. But get just just do the ritual and get Use it live open. Marjorie Taylor Greens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's go back to semi-governing in a week or two after you guys get done with all your animals. I, mean, I just I think as the guy in the middle, I to me it here, just here we go, Rodney. Here we go. <laughs> It just it looks like a bunch. That's going to be on a t-shirt, the guy in the middle. Like, that's <laughs> that's a, it's your new nickname for the podcast. I like it. I'll yeah. I like it, too. I'll uh, just give me a hat. Clowns to the right. Let's go to the, the guy in the middle. What's going on? Yeah. Can we can we have, like, a Marin Morris, uh, why don't you just meet me in the middle uh, theme song for... Uh, I mean, <laughs> I'm for that. Yeah. Like, what... Nobody, I, Patrick, you said in a text earlier, nobody cares. Like people are going on with their lives. Nobody cares. Lucy has her cheerleading. Nobody cares. No, you're right. I don't think any. I mean, it just, it's, you know, if you think it's one of these periods that, the, the way you let in power to the podcast. I mean, there are these times, I don't know if it's every year, probably a couple of times a year where you feel like a lot of crazy stuff is all happening at the same time. 
And you kind of wonder if you're on like an episode of what is it? Jump the shark on happy days. Like that's kind of what this feels like right now where you're just like, are we, there are just so many bizarre big headline things all happening at the same time. And I, I just can't imagine the general public has any, but that's the problem. Yeah. The problem is nobody cares. The only people that care are the people on the far, it's the 20%. It's the 10% on the right and the 10% on the left. And they're the only ones that care, which is why we get bad leaders elected to public office. My, my old boss, Senator Bai, always would say, like, we need we need like radical moderates, but it's not in the DNA of people like the man in the middle, like you, Howard, like we're, <laughs> we're, more, we're naturally conciliatory and we want to bring the temperature down. And those people want to do the opposite. It's like, if we're all in a family, like everyone's got that family member at the holidays, who's trying to amp the arguments up. And all of us in the middle are the ones who are trying to like either tunnel out of there or, try to make it a little better and it's just hard because you feel like in politics right now the people those people on the fringes are setting the tone for everything and you're just powerless to do anything about it so that's why the hands go under the chin and you're yeah. just like I, don't know what to do. It's, I mean to me it's the narrative it's the it's the the narrative is is corrosive and there's a reason mark that the white house tries to control the narrative every day on every issue it's not and that's every white house it's because there's a narrative and the narrative is constantly being woven into the fabric of the country and if the narrative is negative i mean then the narrative the narrative is negative the narrative is negative and to use counters or degrading just a degrading situation one thing that i find interesting howard is that there are actual things happening some good some bad but the things that people are going to be affected by and that they care about are as much outside of government certainly outside of the beltway but outside of government altogether to a degree like the uaw strike that's a real thing and real they're thing. real, especially Patrick Brodney, you know, out, out in the Midwest, there are people out of work. And you're not going to be able to get a car if it goes on for a while. And that will have economic consequences. But that has only marginally to do with government. That's the mm-hmm. actual economy working. I, I would, I actually totally, I completely disagree with that. I think it has a lot to do with government. It has a lot to do with the Biden administration. It has a lot to do with industrial policy. It has a lot to do with the Department of Labor and the things they say and do. Um, Fair enough. I will give you a prediction. Who would like a time? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to ask you who's farther apart. In your view, the UAW and the leadership of the automakers or the Freedom Caucus and like the rest <laughs> of Congress, because it's like it's just kind of watching them both play out. You're like, they are not even close based on, you know, what they're reporting are the the kind of UAW demands. They're not even close. And you kind of got the feeling like with the Freedom Caucus that union leadership wanted this. They were they they were yeah. ready to go. There was no turning back. Like they weren't looking for a deal. They want 
they want the moment. Yeah. Because everybody's the getting theirs right now yeah. across America. Every union that's that struck has gotten a better deal or threatened to strike has gotten a better deal. Everybody's getting theirs. Raise, wages are rising because of inflation. Wages necessarily have to rise to cover that inflation uh, that folks are seeing at the grocery store and the gas pump. And the auto workers haven't gotten it yet. And so now's their turn. Their contract's up and it's time for them to strike. It's just going to continue to happen. This is going to continue to happen for, for a couple more years, probably. It's going to continue to happen. But here's my prediction. The UAW strike will have far more impact on the Q3 and Q4 GDP of this country than any government shutdown will. I don't care if it goes on for three well, or four weeks. Right. Thank you. That's but what will, I was trying to say. But it will yeah. all be blamed on the shutdown by the media. at the By November, they'll be like, okay. look, this is what the Republican shutdown did to the GDP. And we're going to roll back the tape on this one. And we're going to say, no, 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 no. Now, Howard, to answer your question, um, who's closer the, to an agreement, the Freedom Caucus and Dusty Johnson and Stephanie Bice and Kelly Armstrong or the UAW and the auto manufacturers? Uh, the UAW and auto manufacturers by far. He didn't, uh, because I, I he didn't to say you changed the question and I'm on your <laughs> side, but you changed the question. Well, he by the way, Patrick, what was the question? For the record. Who's closer to agreement? Republicans and Democrats on keeping the government open or, question, yeah. or the UAW? That's the well, question. It's, it's keeping the government open is only a, it's only it's only a, a disagreement between Republicans right now. So the question was flawed because the Democrats don't have any say right now. And in this negotiated process on whether or not to avoid a shutdown, it's completely within different factions of the Republican Party. I've been there. I've sat across the table on. Biden has to sign it. Not just shutdown issues or uh, issues of the day. And what will happen is the Freedom Caucus versus De whether they're talking to Democrats or whether they're talking to their own party, they will never find an agreement because it's a foregone conclusion. They want the shutdown. Now, the Democrats are the UAW and the auto manufacturers got their strike. We knew that was coming. They're asking for substantial increases. And they also see it's a perfect time. Look at the price of vehicles. Mark, you talked about people aren't going to be able to buy vehicles. Who's been able to buy vehicles anyway? They are so overpriced over the last really? Right. Only, only the global can get new cars in this economy. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the end, the UAW is smart. The UAW leadership is smart enough to know they can ask for the moon when they're seeing the cars that they built being priced at the moon. Yeah, and and, and the labor markets are tight, and people still can't find workers. And from that point of view, it's just economic. I mean, labor has leverage, and as Towner, as you said, and Mark, they're just exercising their their leverage. It's that it's all the supply, and it's mostly the supply and demand equation with Washington putting its thumb on the scale, certainly in favor of organized right. labor, or at least right. the, the administration. Um, knowing Howard, too, don't you think there's some aspirational, just beyond the pure comp stuff, like the 40% increase that they're asking for? There's some, there's some reset things, some aspirational reset things they're trying to go toward on like four-day work week, 32, stuff that's like they're 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 trying to publicly reset like the employer employee relationship in their industry because they they feel like they were working six and seven days a week and and I don't know how you make it work I have no idea how they're going to resolve it but I feel like they're they're advocating for some transformational type stuff that is going to be hard to to get across. The I also, yeah, I also think it's 
they're looking ahead to a world in which EVs, people need to replace cars less often. And there's more competition from upstart manufacturers like Tesla and Rivian and Polestar and whoever. And I think, you know, the, the world is changing. That world is changing. I also think it's more about a post-COVID employment situation. And I think that was the case with UPS uh, potential strike that ended up getting averted. I think that was the case with with numerous other strikes that have happened is that we have a massive split in this country post-COVID. The fact that Mark Alderman can sit uh, and and do his work on vacation uh, for the last, uh, you know, well, let's say three years um, and and. and yet folks are working six hour days building cars in a manufacturing plant and actually punching clocks still is is a different sort of thing. We're probably all doing this podcast from home because it's Friday and we work at a law firm and it's we'll be dang lucky if if uh you know if folks come in three days a week sometimes. Right. Chowder was like the UAW worker there. He's like, yeah. I'm- I am working seven days a week. Yeah. Uh, the more <laughs> yeah. working attorney that I know what to do with, and leadership is all. Counter, <laughs> Counter, give give me a call and I'll give you a tutorial on how to do this. Okay. Uh, my, you know my, you want to. And and Towner, excuse me, Rodney is up at Harvard figuring out how to fix all of this. I apologize. Some of us are doing are in academia currently. Right. <laughs> sort of work. <laughs> That's so perfect. We're gonna be able to use that for so long. <laughs> <laughs> professor say, professor davis professor davis professor davis but it's a split in this nation half of the nation 100%. is hard at work six days a week the other half of the nation is hard at work i still think i believe but they're hard at work in environments that are that are easy to access that are flexible uh that are you know there's a there's been a there's been a dynamic shift and so if i'm you know, the guy going in the factory six days a week and I'm on a set schedule and that schedule cannot change. And um, and I, now I'm working double shifts because people need more stuff during the pandemic and and everything's going crazy in the economy. All of a sudden, it's time to look around and say, yeah, maybe it is time for a four day week or maybe it is time for for me to you well, know, share in this increase in in economies of scale. Yeah, it's also migrants streaming in across the southern border. And take New York City, for example, where Mayor Adams went off this week on this issue and the administration. It's costing it's costing New York taxpayers $338 a day to support, to put up and support each migrant, and they have tens of thousands of them, approaching a hundred thousand. Each migrant. And they're legally obligated under some construct to do so. Meanwhile, you're the iron worker sitting in, you know, Indiana or whatever it is, and and you're working six days a week and, you know, struggling to make ends meet. Like, or you're the labor you're somebody working on a factory line in in new york state and you're looking at that like it's just that's why people are mad and that's why the that's why 
the narrative about the government shutdown, I completely share your view that at the end of the day, it's silliness and it doesn't matter. And But the narrative, I think, is corrosive. And I just don't understand, guys, why we can't find... This is, to me, at the end of the day, all a function of leadership. And I just don't understand why we can't find better people, younger people, for one thing, which is a dimension of this, but better people to serve in government, to to run for office, to run for president, to run for Congress. And... At the end of the day, this is about people. And why can't we find better leaders? Rodney, you're up at Harvard. You have all the answers. <laughs> um, well, there's a wide variety of factors. Look, I did a forum the other night with my fellow fellows. And one question I got was on gerrymandering. Uh, if you look at what's happened uh, in totality in the House of Representatives, most districts are gerrymandered. The number of competitive districts, like the one I represented for 10 years, uh, are less than half of those that existed 10 years ago. And it wasn't because certain members were able to solidify those districts. No, those districts li district lines changed. Um, partisans in the states realized that the way to control the balance of power in the House is to have your state, if it's a supermajority run by one party, like in my home state of Illinois, draw districts that are gerrymandered to take out those members from the other side. Frankly, it's the reason I'm here with all of you today, pontificating on the issues of the day, rather than sitting back enjoying a cold bush light, uh, like I would have last night with my friends, wondering uh, who next thinks they can negotiate with the Freedom Caucus. Um, but in the end, uh, in the end, this is nothing new from what our country has gone through historically. We've had polarizing moments in our country. Think back to the, the late 1960s when. Uh, we had a very polarized political environment from the far right and the far left. And, and frankly, we had political bombings that seemed to be the norm. Uh, but what concerns me is the fact that a lot of issues that we used to think were um, were kind of uh, newsworthy have become hopeful. Uh, you mentioned it earlier. Uh, nobody cares about impeachment. Patrick, uh, you threw a comment out that you know people are worried about getting their kids to the school events, sporting events. I remember saying the exact same thing when Republic, when Democrats brought the first impeachment of President Trump to the forefront. But there was a big difference in how this impeachment inquiry is covered now versus then. And the legacy media uh, would bombard me with, well, I'm sure they care about the breakdown in norms of this country, which is why the impeachment inquiry is necessary. And you will see you will see over the next few weeks and months when Republicans begin discussing what evidence is out there that the Bidens were corrupt, it will be downplayed by those same media. And I would urge everybody, go online and look at what Speaker McCarthy did to an AP reporter. When the AP reporter said, without evidence, Republicans began an impeachment inquiry into, into the Biden administration. And Kevin McCarthy laid out every piece of evidence and got an AP reporter to admit that's what the evidence says. So I think you're going to see some pushback, but I don't underestimate the impact of how issues are covered by the national media and how That's, they impact I, whether or not people pay attention in the future. Completely agree. And 
I mean, the media, the media, the mainstream media covered up the Hunter Biden story for two years. The New York Post was the only news outlet talking about the, the Biden laptop and everybody else said it was fake. And that's under that's fact. It's there is bias out there and it's it's undeniable. Mark, on, on your side, you spent the summer talking to a number of, of leaders, particularly in the United States Senate. I was with you for some of those on the Democratic side and to a person. I mean, you and I talked to people about this. Talk to we won't name names, but we talked to senior Democrats in the United States Senate, committee chair, committee chairs, and the like. And to a person, they said we need an alternative to Joe Biden. Yet everybody and Rodney on your side, everybody says behind closed doors that they don't want Trump to be the nominee. Like Mark, what we're yeah, we're stuck in a steel cage match with Trump and Biden. Biden's running because Trump's running. Trump's running. You can fill in the blank. If if we could unclog the arteries, which is probably an apt metaphor for guys of their age, there are leaders in both parties that I think would take center stage and and would actually lead and govern on our side. We have a number of governors doing it, Gretchen Whitmer, Josh Shapiro, maybe Gavin Newsom, others, but they can't get in the game because we're blocked at the top by two guys who are, are running against each other. And if we could unclog that, uh, I think on both sides, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, I, I disagree a little bit that we can't attract good people to government, but I sure agree that, that they're having trouble breaking through when we're blocked at the top. Well, that's well said, but I mean, Biden doesn't have to run. Well, he thinks he has to run if Trump's running because he thinks right or wrong and he saved the country from Trump once. I think he's right. And that only he can do it again. He is right. Because you had a field of weak people running for the Democratic nomination for president. And he was the only alternative, which is exactly my point. Well, yes and no. <laughs> Weak or not, they beat him. He finished. Bernie he Sanders finished. wasn't going to beat Donald Trump. No, he wasn't. That was the problem, exactly. He was uh, on his way to the nomination until the party woke up. But, but he wasn't going to beat Donald Trump. And that's exactly what Joe Biden thinks again. Right, but there was no counter. There was no alternative. I don't know that you want my thoughts on this. I they're slightly controversial. I don't. I don't know that Joe Biden even knows he's running again. First of all, and <laughs> second of all, I think it's just the uh, former Obama staff who have run the last you know nearly four years or three years in the White House that would like to hang on to power for another four years before a whole new generation comes in who doesn't really care for those people. That's my two two cents on it. Patrick. Well, uh, wrong and maybe. I'm pretty <laughs> sure the president knows he's running. I, I, I agree with what Mark said. I, I agree with what Mark said. I, I mean, I, 
I also don't know. I mean, I would like to think that if Trump wasn't running, Biden wouldn't run. Uh, but that's giving, I think, the president a lot of credit too that that he would just sort of give up what he's worked his entire life for. And I just, you know, I think we have to attract, we have to simultaneously attract good people and convince them this is a noble way to spend their life because it is, or at least part of their life, because it is, there is sacrifice involved as Rodney can attest, uh, you know, family, financial, everything else. Um, but we also don't want it to be a forever career for people like we're experiencing with, you know, how many people over the age of 80 are serving. And I, I, I thought Romney's comments uh, in his retirement, I, I thought he did a really nice job of just saying what most of the country thinks, which is, and it isn't, I don't think he was meant trying to be ageist in any way either. There, There is, it is not that there is not a role for people of a certain age to play, but he was making the point that leadership in both parties has grown far too old. And th this generation of leadership, the baby boomers, whatever they need to, they need to step back. Um, and if they don't, it will be to the detriment of the people who, well, I think what he said, the people are going to have to live their lives based on the decisions we're making right now. And it just doesn't, I, I feel like you can go back in time and remember when the general generational change happened, those kind of 1960 Kennedy inauguration moments. And it just seems like we're delaying this change as long as humanly possible because there's a whole bunch of people who don't want to hang it up and it's uh it's a problem you know i would be remiss if i didn't point out the fact that i think actually both parties have been doing a very good job of switching over their leadership and getting new leadership we saw democrats obviously change over their entire leadership structure in the house uh last congress and that was it for this congress and that was that was needed, I think, and historic at the same time. It would have been much easier to have Nancy Pelosi still be minority leader and Steny Hoyer still uh, still be the minority whip in the in the minority, for example. But Democrats in the House did it. Republicans have maintained in the House a term limits on committee chairs uh, and ranking members, uh, despite every time it happens and somebody gets kicked out of being a committee chair or a committee ranking member because they hit their term limits they obviously apply for a waiver and and go in front of the steering committee but republicans have held pretty true to that over time which has turned over the house of representatives for the republicans which maybe actually contributes to the problem that we're currently having right now ironically but at the same point in time has at least brought in new leaders uh, over the course of the last 20 years uh, in the House of Representatives that have then been elected to the Senate. I think Mitch McConnell is not going to be leader of the Republicans at the end of this term of Congress, at the very least, but it could be at the end of this year, potentially even. And, you know, these things change over. The only time we're getting stuck right now is because nobody wants to move on from two, you know, 80-year-old potential presidential candidates and that's the only question You're totally right but counter the problem is and, and i know like you're a creature of the legislative branch so this is probably incredibly frustrating no one no one even knows who the house democratic leader is i mean they just don't like unless it changes at the presidential level it's not going to feel like it's changing in the minds of the public because i totally agree with you as data points the legislative branch you're starting to see that change it's just the country doesn't like they think a Congress is just one big blob. They don't know who's in charge of the committees and they don't know what the rules are. And they don't they don't even know that Hakeem Jeffries is the, the I, I could ask 
50 people that in my town and none of them would know that he's the leader of the house all they know is that biden and trump are running again and so until we move on at the presidential level it's just not going to feel like the change is happening well you know regardless of the fact that they clearly don't teach civics or government affairs in uh western suburbs of chicago you know know, it's uh you know i would like to state for the record that you know at least these rising leaders will come to the top whether or not people acknowledge that it or know that it's even happening at least the underpinnings are changing do i hear you suggesting that the public schools in patrick's town should be teaching the House Rules Committee history. Uh, I would be happy to come up there, visit Patrick as a as a visiting scholar, since we all should go back to college, uh, <laughs> you know, at this point as fellow. I think if, if the people of this country knew more about the House Rules Committee, I think we, we'd be better off. Well, I'll tell you what. <laughs> let's, uh, let's leave it there. Uh, spirited, as always. And Tanner, I think you, you're taking us out on a bit of an optimistic note there. So that's a, that's a, that's a great thing. You found the one optimistic thread (laughs) of this conversation. (laughs) That's a wrap. Well, that, yeah, that, that, that's a wrap. Uh, And guys, it's good to be back. Fun, fun discussion, difficult topics, fun discussion. We'll continue to poke fun at Rodney for, spending time up at Harvard Yard, but in all seriousness, it's very cool. Uh, And we'll be back next week. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.